The show is here. Yo, our mission is clear. It's time to change healthcare. Have no fear. Today is the day. This is the hour. Together, you know we've got the power. Drop the silos. We're all the same team. Patients, docs, nurses, tech, and marketing. How can anyone be satisfied with the way things have always been? Yeah, we've tried. So join us now. Join the revolution. Digital health is the evolution. Status quo, more like status, no. Yeah, this is the healthcare rap. Y'all, come on, let's go. New choices, new platforms, new care models. In the healthcare of tomorrow, consumers win. But who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? We're here to answer those questions with some provocative thinking about how to create the healthcare that people actually want. Ready to roll up your sleeves, look at the world a little differently, and explore the frontiers of consumer health together? Join us. This is the Healthcare Wrap. Welcome back. I'm Jared Johnson, ready to share some more provocative thinking about building the healthcare of tomorrow. If you're just now joining us, we hope you'll follow us and check out our previous episodes, all 200 of them. We're in season seven, where we're writing the consumer health playbook and answering three important questions. Who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? Let us know what you think about this episode and what topics you're dying to hear about in future episodes by reaching out on LinkedIn or Twitter at HealthcareRap. So here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the week about the affordability crisis. Can the disruptors do more than transform the consumer experience? Can they also make a dent in the cost? I'll talk about that. Then Jeff Bean from Geisinger is in the house to give us the pay viders point of view. We dive deep into the value prop and business strategy of pay viders and where they're headed as the world starts to look a little further down the horizon. Let's get into it. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the week. Can the disruptors do more than transform the consumer experience of healthcare? Can they also make a dent in the cost? Jane Saracen Khan published a post on May 6th titled People Thinking More About the Value of Healthcare. She explained that the rate of people in the US skipping needed healthcare due to cost tripled in 2021. This prompted West Health and Gallup to collaborate on research to quantify Americans' views on and challenges with personal medical costs. This has resulted in the West Health Gallup Healthcare Affordability Index and Healthcare Value Index. The team's research culminated in the top line finding that some 112 million people in the U.S. struggle to pay for their care. That's about 4.5 in 10 health citizens. Furthermore, 93% of people in America feel that they pay too much for healthcare and don't get the value commensurate with that cost. Paul Keckley also pointed to the affordability crisis in his Keckley report released May 22nd, saying that the U.S. has the most expensive healthcare system in the world, but its outcomes are worse than systems that spend less. The fault lies in incentives that are flawed, a structure that's complicated, and inefficient and inadequate investment in preventive health and social determinants that can be mitigated if addressed head-on. So are the disruptors the answer? TBD. The question in my mind is, who makes the most sense to address affordability? Is it fair to expect the ones who are profiting from the current system to be the ones to change it? Basic business disruption theory tells us that market leaders aren't typically incentivized to change their own business models. In this case, hospitals and specialist providers will never go away. We will always have a need for them, a great need. They do incredible life-saving and life-changing work. So will the business models surrounding them sustain that life-saving work? Also, TBD. We should be paying attention to the business models behind innovative primary care. One player on their own might not sway the market. 
but let's not read the wrong market signals as signs of what consumers want or don't want. For instance, Walmart Health publishes their prices on their website. Those prices are competitive, and they're essentially cash pay for everyone. They're one of the best examples of price transparency, and yet they've stalled out from their highly ambitious national rollout. Does that mean that consumers don't want cash pricing? Not even close. In this case, it appears that Walmart Health's slowdown has more to do with leadership change and board disagreements. So let's not misread the market signals. Every effort to solve the value deficit is a step in the right direction. Let's concentrate more effort on fixing healthcare value and cheer on the disruptors who are attempting to make healthcare more affordable. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the week. All right, everyone, let's get into the flow here. Give it up for Jeff Bean. Jeff's the VP of System Marketing and Branded Geisinger. He's in the house to tell us about the Payviter's point of view, among many other things. Jeff, welcome to the Healthcare Wrap. Hey, thanks, Jared. Uh, great to be here and uh, hope you're doing well. I am doing well. I, the wind chill is not in the 20s here in Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, no, a couple of days ago here, uh, believe it or not, snow flurries, a little bit bizarre this late in the season, but I'm told not uncommon or unheard of. So there you have it. Depends on where you are on this uh, on this great planet. Yeah. So Jeff, what did I miss in your bio? What else would our listener, what would you like our listeners to know about you and your background? Well, I mean, the job, you know, obviously doesn't define me. It's, uh, it's a great role and uh, I'm having a an incredible time here, but, um, you know, I mean, in my spare time, uh, love to cycle and, uh, love to, uh, adopt uh, senior dogs and, uh, dogs that nobody else wants and, uh, you know, give them a couple victory laps, uh, to the finish line. And, uh, those are uh, two of the biggest passions I have when I'm not working here. That's fantastic. That might even be the answer to my next question, which was what gets you out of bed in the morning? Like what motivates you? It, it sounds like those things are kind of related. Well, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, you know, what gets me out of bed is a dog named Zoe. She's an Australian cattle dog. Adopted her on her 10th birthday back in December. And, um, you know, just uh, an incredible dog. A lot of things were going on when I got her, but uh, dogs are incredibly resilient. This dog has uh, turned a corner and she's uh, living her best life. She does get me out of bed first thing in the morning. She's very eager and uh, ready to go. So we've got a, we've got a full routine here and uh, we're usually out on the sidewalk by about seven. That's awesome. And, and Zoe was the one who is LinkedIn famous, right? Uh, yeah, Zoe, uh, it's funny. Some people uh, probably would not agree with this um, strategy. I wouldn't call it a strategy. I would just call it, hey, show different sides of yourself, not just uh, the work side. And when I did introduce Zoe to uh, the folks that uh, I'm connected with on LinkedIn, she literally gained nearly a million views in about a 48 hour window. And I think what resonated with people is the work from home, their office mates. And, uh, and that was really the post was here's my office mate and a couple different details about her. And then suddenly that thing just uh, rocketed around the world. So almost a million views and um, all organic, as we would say. <laughs> I really do enjoy hearing about the whole person when we are just a lot less connected than we've been able to be as an industry in the past. It's great to know other sides of people. Where I want to kind of throw out as our starting point for the conversation has to do with payviders themselves. I feel like we don't talk enough as an industry about the different types of organizations that are delivering care. That's one of our missions on the on the podcast is to help us all just be a little more familiar, take a step back from the day-to-day -day of whatever organization type that we are, belong to, 
and understand what other types of organizations there are and, and how they're different, how they're alike, how we're all kind of reaching towards the same goal. We want to improve the quality of life of people. I think it's very safe to say that and how we go about that, the devil's in the details. And one thing that has emerged is not a trend. It is the future, I feel like, of health delivery, quite frankly, healthcare. And I think payviders are a really interesting player in that. I'd love to understand just from a lay person's explanation if if we act like not not everyone on the who's listening may be fully familiar with the concept, like the business model and the value proposition. Can we start with just kind of a lay person's explanation of, of a payvider and, and how it's different than maybe other types of health systems? Sure. Well, I think the best way, and, and I'm happy to go into more detail, the best way I can describe it is really with an analogy. And uh, so let me give it a shot here. So if you think about traditional health system hospital network, it's a bit like owning a restaurant without having to pay to stock the pantry. So you're you're not on the hook for as much overall operations P&L. And you think of a bit differently. You think about the cooks, the rent, the staff, the menu. If you're a payvider, which I would, you know, I would uh, reclassify as care and coverage, you know, it's care and coverage model. You're simply just not cooking and serving up dishes and looking after customers. You know, you're looking after everything that makes you a better operator. So in this healthcare space, I know everybody looks at this, but we really look at it. You're looking at prevention, screenings, chronic disease management, medication management, you know, BMI, A1C. We're actually trying to keep people out of the hospital. Uh, that's a contrarian play, but we're able to do that because we've got greater visibility into the claims data. We've got better visibility into the PHI, the clinical enterprise. We're able to see more. And as a result, we're able to do things earlier and do things better. So I'm trying to think from the consumer standpoint, you know, before they even become a patient, what draws them to this type of model? What helps them see that like this might be good for me, you know, versus some other type of care? Consolidation and having things in one place is definitely makes it easier for folks when your health insurance plan is also connected to your health provider, your primary care physician, your specialist, your pharmacy your ancillary care, there's greater convenience, clearly. So in the world that we live in now, fragmentation's tough, a lot of friction between different uh, parts of uh, the system. And so I would say, you know, Jared, first and foremost, convenience and uh, ease, ease of use and access is a big plus for the consumer. How do you incentivize a provider to keep somebody out of the hospital? Well, when you're part of a system, right, we're all working toward the same goal here. And so that's really keeping people healthy. Now, I know that sounds sort of cliche, but we're actually in a position here, Jared. So we're actually looking to not only keep people healthy, we're looking to keep people that are pretty sick from going into the ER, from uh, declining further. So when we talk about care coverage, it's keeping your healthy folks really healthy by doing all their screenings and making sure that uh, these folks are closely followed and uh, are staying on top of their meds if they are taking meds, getting them off their meds if they can get off them. And oftentimes we do that, which is great for the uh, for the patient. But even to the, uh, the degree that we've got folks that are very sick, we've got Medicaid folks, we've got folks that are, you know, DSNP, uh, the Medicare dual eligible population, these are folks that could be under 65 who have other chronic health issues. We have case management teams. We don't just see folks in the clinics with the doctors. We send people to their homes. We make house calls. We care for people in their homes who are on the sicker end. And again, it's all around 
utilization. It's all around keeping folks as healthy as possible. It's all around reducing unnecessary ED visits. It's really trying to help people get to their best self. And uh, again, I mean, you're motivated to do that because the entire system is built upon the model. Of course, you know, we will do surgeries for medically necessary procedures, and we do those very well. But the model, the old model was, you know, fill the hospitals. We already have enough folks coming in. You know, the populations already are aging. There's already enough happening there. We've got lots of sick people, people with chronic diseases. We need to do a better job on helping keep people out of the hospital. And, you know, by that, that's just 360 uh, care. That's everything from regular checkups to, again, making sure they're taking their uh, medications. When you have folks on a health plan and you're caring for them, you have higher medication adherence is the term, right? And when you have folks that are taking their meds to manage chronic disease, you have better health outcomes. You have reduced ED visits. When you have folks providing care in the home, you've got fewer episodes where somebody needs to call an ambulance, where somebody needs to come to the ED. You've got folks that are stabilized and they're in their homes, which is really where they want to be. You know, people to not wake up every day and say, I I just can't wait to get to the ED or get into the hospital. And so taking the care out to your members and providing the care in ways that uh, are go well beyond just primary care and specialty care is really the model here. And so when you think about what we're doing, it's really based on that. So this might sound obvious, but, but I think it's helpful to walk through it. How does this approach lead to a better brand experience? Like what's the brand value of what you just described? Yeah. What is the brand value? Well, I love the question because I do work in the brand space. I will tell you, you know, we have shot 18 different spots 30 second spots that we run here. And this is a really unique place, central Northeast PA. We have folks who generationally they have gotten care here and it continues. People here look to the health system as a, I would say, you know, one of the advantages of living in this area. They really hold the health system to a different level. And by that, I mean, we're part of the community. And so when you think about the brand experience, We're with these folks in their communities. We're with them on the ball fields. We're looking after their kids with athletic trainers in the high schools, at the universities. We're just, we're embedded. We're part of the community. And so the brand experience is really a community experience and a community experience. And that sort of lineage with families is is all about loyalty. So the brand experience comes down to really life experience. Stay tuned for more provocative thinking after the break. Hey, listen up, y'all. Did you know that nearly 60% of people wish their healthcare provider sent them more relevant health information? And 42% would even consider switching to a different provider that sent them more, according to a recent survey of patients in the U.S. The vast majority of them would prefer to get that information via email or text. Persado is a natural language AI company that provides healthcare organizations with pre-developed, pre-optimized messaging journeys proven to build digital relationships, improve health goals, and increase patient retention. Deliver better health outcomes and revenue growth with Persado's data-driven content that inspires action. Visit persado.com to learn more. That's persado, P-E-R-S-A-D-O.com to find out how Persado can help. (laughs) 
Justin Knott here with the Patient Convert Podcast, your weekly dose of healthcare marketing growth strategies, co-hosted by Justin and Kelly Knott. This is perfect for physicians, practice owners, healthcare entrepreneurs, and healthcare executives. We are breaking down what practices and healthcare organizations should be doing to grow, reach, and retain patients. There's so much confusion and so many options out there around what you should be focusing on to grow your practice, and we're breaking down each week what really works. We're bringing real-world application, case studies, and interviews from leading growth-minded physicians and healthcare executives. So catch us weekly on your favorite listening platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. Okay, back to the flow. I'm always curious to see those who are actively trying to make healthcare easier, like what they're doing and how they're doing it. Any insights for for how any of these programs or the the concept of a pay provider, how that can make healthcare easier for consumers? So let me give you an example. Um, we have a sub-brand called 65 Forward, Geisinger 65 Forward. This is primary care for folks that are 65 plus. It's probably the closest thing you could point to today to a one-stop shop. And by that, I mean, if you are a member of our Medicare insurance plan, you have access to a Geisinger 65 Forward. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a neighborhood development. It's not in the hospital. It's not in a medical clinic. It is a standalone. It is a freestanding health center. You get an hour with your physician, up to an hour. So if you think about physicians and panels and you think about healthcare economics, it's a numbers, it's a numbers uh, calculation. Well, when you are uh, providing care coverage, you can actually modify the numbers and still make the plan, make the model work. And so these providers have a panel of about 450. And that's well, well below what a traditional primary care doctor would have. So it's up to an hour with your physician. There's fitness equipment, treadmills, weights inside the the, the health center. Uh, There's a social area. There's a fireplace. There are classes. There are different social outings. And again, you know, coming out of COVID now, we're able to ramp those back up. You can have your uh, imaging done there. You can have almost anything done there related to primary care. And this is one of the things that you're able to do in the care coverage model, because again, it's about keeping folks healthy. And the way you keep folks healthy is you spend more time with them. You help them battle uh, some of the other social determinants of health. We talk a lot about SDOH, but I mean, loneliness, right? We've seen people who come to our health centers who live alone. And uh, this is a, you know, a lifeline for them to be able to come in and see friends and while you're going to the, uh, to see your doctor, right? So it's much more than going to the doctor. It's, um, you know, it's much more holistic. So that's a model that's really interesting to me. We launched that here in Pennsylvania in the summer of 2019 before COVID. We're now up to nine centers at the end of the year. We'll have 12 total across our uh, service footprint. Wow, that makes me go a couple of different places. First and foremost, that patient panel of like 450 is very intriguing. I know models like direct primary care, you know, one of the 
the selling points, if you will, is the fact that they have a smaller patient panel compared to a, a traditional primary care provider, which is what usually, uh, I mean, it used to be well, like 2000 to 2400, something like that. And, and there's been debate over that over the years is what I understand. Uh, direct primary care may be more like, like 1000 or 1200. So that smaller patient panel typically implies that they are able to spend more time with each patient. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. It made my mind go to this thought of not thinking that healthcare is going to be digital or in-person. It's an and. It's going to be both. (laughs) The more we debate, in my mind, between virtual or digital options for care and in-person care and say, like, it has to be one or the other, the less productive that becomes. When we realize the answer is both and we spend our time accommodating both types and understanding where each kind makes sense, that's where we're going to get to a better version of healthcare in my mind is like, what do you think about the difference between you're, you're just describing some of the benefits of in-person care. Is that fair to say that there's a balance between that and virtual care and digital? Because I just, I just see debates all the time online about uh, it's going to be one or the other. And, and, you know, when telehealth visits drop, that means see people don't want that. And I, I just feel like that's not as productive as a conversation as it could be. I agree. It is the and it's not the or. I mean, listen, digital is here to stay. It's not going away. You know, as a father of uh, two daughters, I mean, you know, the younger generation, that full expectation will be around digital. And I would say that, you know, our older population and our higher consumers of healthcare are adopting digital. So, you know, we make a lot of assumptions, but we saw the numbers during uh, COVID. And obviously, a lot of that was driven by fear of coming into a into a healthcare facility for fear of uh, potentially being exposed just by virtue of what was happening in healthcare facilities. But we haven't seen the numbers, you know, go off a cliff. And I think some of those habits that have been formed that were formed during COVID are going to be here to stay. Some people absolutely love it. They don't really want to go in unless they have to. And so if you think about it, the ability to manage vitals, see somebody face to face, not actually have to manipulate, you know, perhaps a joint that's, uh, you know, going south or to do other parts of uh, physical exams that require in-person. It's absolutely something that everybody needs to be ready for because it's not going away. It's not a pandemic thing. It's a consumer thing. And there are consumers that are going to say, this is how I want to get care. This is what I'm looking for. And if you're not doing it, I think uh, you will be missing uh, that part of the uh, that part of the growth curve, it's going to be here. Now, will it, you know, explode in the next, you know, just few years? It, it will take, you know, a bit of time for adoption and perfecting it and improving it. And if you think about it, we'll look back probably five plus years and go, wow, that seemed kind of primitive what we were doing there. Because we, have, we already know this, that everything uh, starts at a benchmark and then it builds from there. So I think uh, telehealth, by the way, I'm, in, I'm a user of telehealth. And anything that's convenient for me in particular. So I love it. And, uh, you know, I didn't have to get in the car and drive. And I live in rural PA. I mean, a traffic jam here is a tractor, you know, in front of you on, uh, you know, on a farm road. There is no gridlock. There are no, you know, one hour drives to go uh, five miles. And so, you know, even here in rural PA, I will tell you, and the bandwidth is there. You've got 4G, 5G. You can do it on your phone very easily. It's not limited by bandwidth constraints. I just think it's here to stay and I think it'll only get better. I, I, I really hope it does. Like, I don't know how widespread it is to to have the types of models that uh, the Geisinger does in terms of uh, incentivizing the, these preventive forms of care and recognizing the difference and, and recognizing the the desire to improve your brand value by providing a better experience 
What, what kind of progress do you see us being able to make as an industry over the next couple of years? Do you see more health systems starting to see the value of that? Is that going to be a struggle for a while? And if so, like where might we look to know if, if things are catching on? Yeah, thanks for that. So it's not easy to do both. And I think, and when I say that, I mean, I want to preface that by saying it's not easy to do both as you change. If you've been doing it and you've perfected it, it's sustainable. It's very sustainable. So I think there are some health systems that are looking to do that. Some have already. You know, when we talk about the payvider, you know, you think about Intermountain, right, is a fully integrated healthcare delivery system, care coverage. Some people would say, well, Kaiser is also, well, Kaiser's, a, you know, it's a closed network, right? And so really it's, you know, the model is HMO in a classic way. I would point out to uh, anybody listening here, you know, who's paying real close attention to what's happening, the uh, convergence of Aetna and CVS, that's a payvider, if you think about it. So it's coverage and care, not all care, but they're delivering care and they're working hard to deliver care in their retail footprint. So that model and uh, that preventative model, I mean, if, if folks are paying very close attention, that's where things are really moving. And I would say, when you are in a position to do that, again, you've just got better visibility to everything in terms of what is happening for the patient and how do you best care for them. The more access you have to the data, the more access you have to how care is being accessed and where and what the results are, the, the better you're going to be doing. And that care coverage model gives you just much better visibility to be able to provide that care, anticipate. And uh, what you're seeing with uh, Aetna CVS is no different. Of course, they're not they're not doing uh, major surgeries in uh, these retail locations, but I, they are uh, doing their level best to do vaccinations, to do obviously prescriptions, to do uh, medication management. So that's real. That's happening now. Uh, you mentioned CVS, and and uh, that leads me to kind of my my final question. So it's almost a little off topic there, but it's something you posted recently, which I'd love to. Here, if, uh, if there's any more you can share about this, it was just a few days ago, you talked about, you know, would somebody be looking to build a proof of concept healthcare store is what you called it, something that provides a, a true 360 degree customer experience. And I found it fascinating because you're talking about, you're kind of setting that up saying that, you know, big retail stores are really working overtime to integrate services there. Why don't health systems uh, behave more like that? You call that post and, and can you give us a, a little bit more about sure. it? I'm, I'm just intrigued by the, the concept. Sure. No, happy to. You know, the more I think about 65 Forward and having been so close to it and uh, involved with it, you know, the more it occurs to me that if we think about consumerism and we think about helping uh, folks stay healthier, we need to really think about how do we present ourselves. And so health systems historically, right, large hospitals, additions, maybe some clinics, outpatient, could be difficult to navigate. Things move around inside the facility. It's not really set up for consumer. It's set up for the system. What if we just started from scratch and build a healthcare store? And I mean, not just a place to go see the primary care physician, but a place you could go for lunch and go for a cooking class and go to the gym and maybe shop for health plans, get a comparison, you know, sit down with somebody and review your Medicare coverage or your marketplace coverage or, you know, your Medicaid ship, even to the point of doing, uh, having your uh, 
genome sequenced, some DNA testing. We have a program called MyCode, and we see about 5% uh, gene mu- mutation and risk, potential risk, right? Which is really valuable. So if you think about all these different consumer plays, you know, where do you go for the gym? Where do you go to eat? Where do you go to get your family history, DNA? Where do you go to do a lot of these things? We have all the pieces of the puzzle. We could literally build that and uh, do a proof of concept. And again, you know, Amazon builds bookstores, you know, in San Diego, where I'm from, there's a bookstore, an Amazon bookstore in University Town Center in the mall, one of the malls there in La Jolla. And you'd ask yourself, wait a minute, I thought they're online. Why would they build a bookstore? Why would they build a brick and mortar? Well, because they learn from it. And some people really enjoy going in and picking up Kindles and touching them and test driving them. And people like to hold books. And so when you think about healthcare consumerism, it's not a either or, it's not digital or brick and mortar. It's a blend. You know, this healthcare store, you could also go in and do telehealth visits, right? With, uh, with specialists, right? Who are not in the building, but they are, you know, geographically dispersed. We have the pipes, we have the technology, we have the people, we have the talent, the packaging and the presentation and the value to a consumer is, is what, you know, I see in that area, I would put front and center and then test the proof of concept and ask people what they want, right? And I don't think we do that enough in healthcare and we should do more of it. I think anyone who's listened to me in the past will say, I, they will not be surprised to say, I agree with that 100%. We can do more of that as an industry. We can recognize the opportunity in it. It helps us shake loose from the status quo thinking and it helps us really think more like a disruptor. And that leads to amazing places. It's amazing to hear about the types of, of things that are being done right now and that are being imagined. And I can only imagine where healthcare is going to be in the next couple of years from now. Uh, Jeff, this has been a ton of fun. I want to make sure our listeners have a chance to know before we go, if there's like, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jared. Uh, LinkedIn's the best place to get me. And uh, it's just Jeff Bean. Uh, if you type in Jeff Bean Geisinger, I should come up if the algorithm is working correctly. That's the best place to get me. Uh, reach out and connect. Happy to do that. Awesome. Any uh, final thoughts? Anything else we haven't shared before I go? Yo? It's a really great time, I think, to be in this space. And, uh, you know, I just hope COVID is manageable and we don't uh, ever see what we saw, you know, for the last two years that we're actually out of the uh, out of the woods on that. Well, I will second that in a perfect way to wrap us up, Jeff. Thanks again for giving us a few minutes today and a ton to think about. Stay safe and, and uh, best of luck in everything you've got going on. Thanks so much, Jared. Take care. Hey, thanks again for listening. We hope you found some value in this conversation. And if you did, do us a favor and follow us using your favorite podcast app. Then tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Healthcare App is a member of the Shift.Health Content Network. If you enjoyed this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in the Shift.Health Content Network. Go check out the latest show. In fact, it's called Hello Healthcare, hosted by Chris Hemphill. It's focused on people who are moving healthcare forward, how healthcare strategy relates to data and AI, and what you can do to create or demand a better future. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or at Shift.Health, where all 35 podcasts and video series are free and available on demand. Until next time, keep marketing forward. Thanks. And that's a wrap.